Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we've got a bonus podcast for you. Uh, so usually, we're like, oh, let's talk about some super popular thing that everyone's talking about, like Hamilton. And that's what we did on our last episode. We were joined by Haley Fouch, and we talked about Hamilton, and it was great. And then we're like, let's talk about a movie that's really popular. So we're gonna, in this episode, we're going to talk about Eurovision, and we're also going to talk about Irresistible, which no one has seen except for me, Adam, some assorted film critics whose job it was literally to see this movie and make two other people. Like, it's not... It's not blowing up. So the way this episode is going to be structured is we're going to first talk about Eurovision. And then if you want to stick around and listen to us talk about Irresistible and Jon Stewart, we will get into that. Uh, there will be spoilers for both. So if you haven't seen it or you're worried about spoilers for Irresistible, and there is a twist in Irresistible. I'll say there that is, right yeah, There is genuine spoilers. There's a genuine spoiler there. Um, but in any event, if you're worried about spoilers, uh, you know, I, I can't help you. We'll be back next week with another episode that may not delve into as many spoilers. Who knows? Oh, it will. It's Palm Springs. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we actually have no choice but to dig into spoilers there. So, so watch Palm Springs show. this weekend. You will have a very fun time doing yes, it. Yes, I, I would say it is It is genuinely worth like do like a Hulu free trial just to watch Palm Springs. Yeah, uh, It's that good. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk about Eurovision and Irresistible. So kicking things off with Eurovision... I'm kind of in the minority on this film. I thought it was okay. And I think, so I, I thought it was okay. And then like the songs just would not get out of my head because the music is very good. And I, I was, it, I don't want to say it made me angry, but it made me, I had watched another film a few weeks ago or like a month prior called The High Note uh, with Dakota Johnson. And the songs are bad, but it's like, this is a best-selling artist and this is an artist on the right. Like the songs need to be good to solidify the world of the movie and the songs are bad. And so you get to a film like Eurovision where it's technically supposed to be silly and the songs are really good. And you're like, all movies should have good songs. Like don't, if your movie is about music, do not skimp on the songs. Yeah. Uh, Cause the songs in Eurovision are really good. And I think sort of where I've settled with the film is even though it didn't, I think the film is a little too long and not, side splittingly funny although there is one joke that destroyed me and since <laughs> it's it's a spoiler podcast i'm going to share it right now uh the joke that i i was i was like crying laughing was the elf <laughs> throwing the <laughs> tiny knife and then the door just <laughs> he says i'll just leave the knife here in case you need to do more murders <laughs> <laughs> that that really got me but for the most part i didn't think the film was that funny but on like it's a very comfortable watch like it's a, it's 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 kind of a sweet movie even though like you're very conscious of like i know all these plot beats like i have seen a romantic comedy before i know like i know how these characters are going to interact i know like oh well farrell's character is estranged from his father who's played by pierce brosnan but at the pivotal moment, like this, the Pierce Brosnan character is going to be like, I'm proud of you, son. And like, it's going to push him to fulfill his destiny. Like I've seen that movie. I've seen that movie um, kind of done much better with walk hard. I mean, it's that same kind of like my father doesn't approve of my singing career uh, just in terms of that arc. But I, I feel like for the most part, like Eurovision, it's grown on me 
like I remember I texted you while I was watching it. I'm like, I can't imagine watching this movie twice. And yeah. now I'm like, I can I can watch Eurovision again. Well, like, and when I like, was watching it, I was like, oh, I really want to watch this again. <laughs> I was like, Matt is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I I really liked the movie. I I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it. It the first act is kind of what you think it's going to be, and I have talked to enough people in real life to know that I think a lot of people didn't watch it because they thought it was just going to be another dumb Will Ferrell comedy because like his choices lately haven't been great. Like Get Hard and um Holmes and Watson was just abysmal. And I've heard him speak that like now he literally will only do things that like tickle him. Like he only does things that he thinks will be fun for him to do, which is perfectly valid. Like he has more than earned the clout to, you know, he's a family man. He's a father uh, and a husband. He's more than earned a clout to like choose. Like, I'm only going to do things that make me happy. Like that's his choice. Go with it. I wish that he, you know, uh, made some better choices. But um, I don't know. We can get into the Will Ferrell of it all after this because I have more thoughts on that. Sure. Um, yeah, as do I. But the. But the first act of it feels kind of like that silly Will Ferrell comedy. It's kind of goofy. Um, and Rachel McAdams is great, as as you expect. But once they get to Eurovision and once that kind of kicks off, um, I found myself really digging the narrative and really digging the emotional arcs of the story. And I think where it differs, I think what really made it stick out for me is that it it was very sweet and joyful. Like, it was very fun. It made me happy. But also it takes those emotional beats seriously. So like, I would disagree with you on walk hard. I think walk hard is a much funnier film, but like emotionally, like the no, father yeah. son arc. I was is talking more like that. plot beats than emotional beats. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and that makes sense. Like walk hard is, is hands down funnier than Eurovision, but like in Eurovision, just because it's expected doesn't mean it doesn't work. Like it worked for me. Like those, those emotional beats, like when she sings the finale song and she starts to sing in Icelandic, um, the way that Dobkin approaches it from uh, just from a cinematic standpoint, it's very sweet. Like you see how much it means to to her people and to her that she's singing about home and she's making this this kind of statement about this fairly small country uh, relatively um, that doesn't necessarily get up on the stage like that. And you feel I don't know, I get kind of wrapped. I got wrapped up in it and I got kind of choked up during that finale scene. Um and even just the the relationship between Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams' characters, which, again, like in any other comedy, you kind of know where it's going to go. But the way they go about it, I think, uh, makes it more impactful. And the seriousness with which the story takes those emotional stakes, I think, makes a big difference. So that's that's what made it work for me. And then obviously the songs are a ton of fun. And then you have moments like the elves, which are super funny. I also laughed a lot um, the two times they were singing on stage where Will Ferrell, like the first time where he like wasn't on stage yet, he was talking to the guys in the booth, like way in the back of the theater and like trying to walk over. Um, and then when the hamster wheel started rolling and he was like, I can fix this, I can fix this. Um, but, you know, obviously, as with any movie that stars Rachel McAdams, she is the MVP of this film. Like she is just a tremendous comedic force, but also just such a good dramatic actress as well. Remember when, like, Doctor Strange had the best cast of any Marvel <laughs> movie? It had everyone, and that film is utterly forgettable. 
Yeah, and Ed, like Mike, you were like, oh man, Michael Stuhlbarg, and she would tell Ejiofor and Tilda Swinton. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. And like, and, really, Tilda Swinton is the only one that has any substantial screen. Yeah, time. and like, like the film just wastes Rachel McAdams. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I'm not coming back for the next Doctor Strange yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Just why, to why play the, the girlfriend. Yeah, uh, just to play the girlfriend. Uh, yeah, no, Rachel McAdams is great. And, you know, to go to the Will Ferrell of it all, I think that a film like Eurovision is more of his wheelhouse than something like even something like daddy's home. Like daddy's home is just feels like, um, why would you make this movie or even something like get hard? Like, why would you make this? Whereas like Eurovision is just kind of out there enough to be like, yeah, I would, this seems like a film that not other, that someone else would not make that, that you can put your clout behind it and really have fun with it in the same way that I would say like a film like Casa de mi Padre is like this sort of weird out there concept. Like, yeah, we're going to put Will Ferrell in a telenovela, completely Spanish language film, even though he's not a Spanish speaking actor. And I feel like even though a film like Casa de mi Padre is not amazing, I find it certainly more interesting for him as I find Eurovision more interesting for like, that's the thing. I don't see Eurovision as like another dumb Will Ferrell comedy. Like to me, that's something more like, get hard which is whatever but i feel like at least eurovision even though i wouldn't say like it's certainly not like among his like funniest films it's at least a film that feels different and not so staid in a way that like you'd get from like the daddy's home films and i think the first and i say that as someone who thinks the first daddy's home is fine i never bothered with the sequel because mel gibson can go fuck himself but (laughs) that's fair yeah, I think, I mean, it, I also think it's worth noting that Will Ferrell wrote Eurovision. He co-wrote it with Andrew Steele, who wrote Casa de mi Padre. So I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and Eurovision, I think, was entirely Will Ferrell's idea. Uh, his wife is Swedish, I believe. So she introduced him to Eurovision. And he was like, oh, this would be kind of a funny setting for a comedy. And I think you see with with movies, especially like Get Hard um, and Holmes and Watson in particular, those are very clearly former Adam McKay projects that Adam McKay did not direct. So Adam McKay is still a producer on those films. I think very specifically Holmes and Watson was supposed to be an Adam McKay movie. Um, And I think you can feel when you have a premise that goofy, you feel Adam McKay's absence from those movies. Um, Cause you look at Anchorman and you think like, what if Anchorman had been directed by, um, I can't remember the guy's name who did Holmes and Watson was eating Cohen. Yeah, Eden Cohen. Like you could see a much more boring standard version of that movie. Well, weren't, what weren't you on the set of Anchorman too? Like someone know. was, and I was remember like they were saying like it's just a bunch of like they were out they were there the day they were shooting the SeaWorld scene. And a lot of the film is just like Adam McKay, like shouting out alternate lines. Like he's yeah. giving them a lot to work with. And like, he's basically writing it on set. Yes, he, they're, exactly. they're in the moment. It's not just like, here's the screenplay, here are the jokes and that's on with it, which is how you like, you know, that's why there's an, an alternate cut of Anchorman. That's a different movie. Yes. <laughs> like the fact that wake up Ron Burgundy <laughs> even exists is kind of amazing. Yeah, and Adam McKay is, I mean, he was former head writer at SNL. Like, all those heydays of Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon, like, Adam McKay was the head writer at that time. And I think Adam McKay had a somewhat fraught relationship with Lorne and with SNL at the time. I think Lorne understood 
I don't know. I've heard stories. Uh, the one that sticks out to my mind is that Adam McKay, like in his final year, like Lauren, like begged him to come back. And he said the only way he would stay with SNL for one more year is that if he didn't have to go to pitch meetings anymore and he could choose his own title. And his title was Falconer or like Chief Falconer. And that's literally what showed up in the credits of SNL for his final year was Chief Falconer. Adam McKay. Um, so like he, I think they knew he was brilliant, but he was also kind of over it. And obviously once he left, uh, Will Ferrell left with him, I think. And they obviously made Anchorman next, but you're right. He's writing those movies on the fly. He's yelling out alts, um, which David O. Russell does the same thing, but I don't think it works very well for dramas. Um, I know David O. Russell will yell in actors ears while they're like trying to perform dramatic scenes and some actors love it. Some actors hate it. Uh, and for Anchorman specifically, I think Adam McKay told the story of with Samuel L. Jackson the first time he did it. Samuel L. Jackson was like, excuse me? Because like Samuel L. Jackson was trying to do this scene and the other guys at Adam McKay was like, now say this. And he's like, what? And he said like Samuel L. Jackson was a little standoffish. And he was like, listen, this is what I do. Trust it. And he was like, after 10 minutes, Samuel L. Jackson loved it. But it is a very different way of working. And yeah, you're right. He's writing those movies on the fly. And so I think you put Will Ferrell in a comedy that's not as well structured or as well written, it's going to fall flat. Right, exactly. And I think that's how you get films like like a lot of kind of forgettable films like Semi-Pro and yeah. um, Blades of Glory. I, I kind of like Blades of Glory. <laughs> I actually I, I, I know that movie has fans. I am not one of them. It's yeah, yeah you know, it's. There aren't a lot of movies set in the world of figure skating, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. And I think it's, you know, I, I think Will, I think Will Ferrell does an all right job with that. You know, with like, I like the, I think the concept of Blades of Glory carries it pretty far, and I think the characters are strong enough that you could it it doesn't it doesn't fall apart at the seams in the way that like a film like Semi Pro does. Yeah, or Land of the Lost, which is or or Land of the Lost, yeah. Concept. Um. But yeah, yeah. I, I think. Well, I was going to say now he's doing like those Lifetime movies with Kristen Wiig, where like. Which is they, another one where it's just like, yeah, we just want to do this thing. And I'm like, yeah. you do you. Yeah, do whatever you want. Because <laughs> they didn't even want it promoted. They wanted it to just show up on Lifetime and people to be like, what <laughs> is this? <laughs> and I kind of like the fact that like they play it, it's a film like they've played it largely as largely straight. Yeah. The film yeah, no, they wanted like adoption. They wanted like a legitimate script. Like they didn't write it. They wanted to use a real lifetime movie script and go in there and just do it. So I, I was entertained by it. Like I think some people were like, it's not camp enough. And I was just like, it, it works for me. I was, yeah. you know, the, the the recurring line, your dad will take your bike away. Like <laughs> uh, it's silly. Yeah. Uh and I think I we re- talked a little bit about downhill. I think downhill was maybe him trying to push back into that dramatic territory a bit. A bit. I feel like, yeah, downhill felt like, oh, we really appreciate this like force majeure. We want to give us give this a spin, and maybe he just wanted to work with like Jim Rash and Nat Faxon. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I feel like he kind of like like you said, I'm doing. He's doing things that interest him. Yeah. And I think also, you know, the chance to work opposite Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who doesn't do movies, really. Yeah. Like, you know, for the and most part. she does, they're very good. Like, Enough Said, I think, is great. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's... I understand why he did Downhill, even if I thought Downhill was whatever. Like, we yeah. saw it at Sundance, and we're like, this is fine. This doesn't need to really exist, but it's fine. Some people were very mad at it, because it was marketed as a comedy, and it's not really a comedy. No, it's not. I mean, that's the thing about... I mean. 
that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but I do like Eurovision does feel like the kind of movie he would make in the mid to late 2000s, but it's made very well. Um, and David Dobkin, I mean, he's made some good movies like Wedding Crashers, I think is a good movie, um, although I haven't revisited in a while, so I'm not necessarily sure how it holds up. Um, and he's made movies like Fred Claus or like The Change Up, which are just like, eh, you know, can take or leave those. <laughs> And then the judge, which is just an entire departure for him. I forgot that he also made Shanghai Nights. I like Shanghai Nights. Or yeah. I, I liked it when I saw it when it came out. I have not revisited it. Yeah. In a I long think he time. is. I mean, the thing that stuck out to me about David Dobkin with Reading Crashers was that it felt cinematic. Like, I liked the cinematography mm-hmm. of that movie. And I think that that holds true of Eurovision as well. Like, it feels I, like a real movie. Well, and it also feels like he's kind of going with the flow in a way like the whole song off thing could have felt very much like a like just a pitch perfect ripoff because of the way it's structured Mm -hmm. but instead he shot it in such a way that it feels like a music video within the the larger film yeah and it's just very earnest like this is a movie that's not trying this is a movie that's not too cynical to be like listen we are moved by music music is is an emotional Mm -hmm. art form and, uh, you know, it speaks volumes to any number of people around the world. So it's not trying to be too cool for school. This is going to be a very niche comment for people that have seen Eurovision, but I still believe that Belarus was robbed. <laughs> I downloaded <laughs> I thought Belarus had the best act of anyone. <laughs> Which one was Belarus? I'm there was the one, there's the, 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 the song about the wolf. Running. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> and there's like kind of metal, but also <laughs> I downloaded that song that I, I don't like five or six Eurovision songs. Yeah. Yeah. I've been listening to them on, on Apple Music. They're fun. Yeah. They're they're really fun. Like, that's the thing. Like, the music is genuinely good. And I would not be surprised if like it gets a best song nomination at the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, I think they enlisted like genuine like Swedish songwriters to make sure that they were writing like Swedish pop songs or like European pop songs that would appear in Eurovision. So it wasn't like kind of like Americanized version of what you think uh, Eurovision is because Eurovision is not an American thing. Uh, I only learned about it a few years ago because it's not even broadcast here. So Right. Which I think plays well into one of his jokes where he just insults the Americans repeatedly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, don't come to Iceland. We don't want you there. <laughs> um, and of course, the the good joke about uh, Yaya Ding Dong. <laughs> oh, just, such a good joke. I think if we were allowed to like go out and like leave our houses and interact with other people, people would be shouting Yaya Ding Dong <laughs> at each other. <laughs> I only want to hear Yaya Ding Dong. <laughs> only want to hear. It makes him happy. <laughs> well, and that's what the that's kind of what this movie is. Like, it just makes you happy. Like, it's not breaking mm-hmm. the mold. It's not. Uh, like wildly unique, but it is very earnest and it has very good performances by actors who are taking it seriously. And I think that that kind of makes all the difference, especially in the wake of so many Netflix movies that feel algorithm driven and just kind of feel so cynical in their construction and execution where it's just like, oh, yeah, you like this thing. So we'll do it exactly the way that you like. Yeah. So, yeah, it's I mean, that's sort of the funny thing about Netflix is that it's so much of it. Like you said, it's kind of algorithm driven. And yet the stuff that I feel like breaks out is the stuff that they haven't really counted on or yeah. really thought about. Like, again, like, I mean, it should never be forgotten that Stranger Things was not meant to be a hit. Like, no, they, never, they tried they, to bury it. They never saw it coming. So no. for all of like Netflix is like, we know the algorithm and what people will like. No, you fucking don't. Yeah. 
Well, I think we're seeing that, and this is a larger conversation, not to go on a crazy tan- tangent, but like you look at the original shows that they're putting out and the original films that they're putting out, and it's not all of them. They have tremendous prestige films that they put out every year from like Alfonso Corona, Martin Scorsese. Like they're kind of the new um, Megan Ellison, and that they'll just give these auteurs the money to do whatever they want. Um, but the stuff that's coming out weekly uh, or like every other week, and and the shows. There's one especially coming up that I've heard is just like insanely algorithm driven. And Kerry Fukunaga talked about this with Maniac, which I enjoyed. But he said that like Netflix literally would show him like, hey, by you have this thing that happens in episode five. We can tell you from our data that people like it when a thing like that happens in episode three. So you should consider moving it. And he said he was grateful for it because he could now it wasn't just the whims and whimsy of studio heads, but it was following data. But I think what we're seeing, like, it's been so long since Stranger Things was a breakout hit and like The Witcher broke out. But I don't think anyone with The Witcher on the level of um, like Stranger Things or Game of Thrones, like there's a level of camp with The Witcher that's like it's like this show is nowhere near like perfect or wonderful, but it's tons of fun. Um, And and I've personally reached the point where like I'm like if if it's not like there's the Netflix Netflix prestige level where it's like those films will come out in the fall and like obviously like like when mank comes out i'm gonna be like yeah i'm excited for mank and like mank will probably be amazing because it's david fincher and i know david fincher and it's not like you know netflix is telling david fincher like behave you know obey the algorithm and he's yeah because he'll just be like fuck you <laughs> he would say fuck you i'm leaving <laughs> exactly um so like that's that's one thing that's that's sort of in its own little area but for the most part, like I've reached the point where like if a Netflix movie is like good, I'm kind of genuinely surprised. Like I was gen like I, I saw the trailers for The Old Guard, and even though I liked uh Gina Prince Bythewood and I like I, I thought Beyond the Lights was really well well done, I was still like, this looks like this looks terrible, to be honest. Like I, I saw the trailer for the Old Guard, I'm like, oh, another team of mercenaries who live off the grid, like Six Underground, which was dog shit. And I watched plus the, old, plus the mythology of like the Witcher, or yeah, like plus the mythology, fans- plus like superheroes because they can regenerate. Like, and it's just like, oh, it's it's a, it's algor- it's just the algorithm. But like she like her and like write, the writer Greg Rucka adapting his comic, like they made a really good movie. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for people to see the old guard, but to me, that's more of the exception because more often than not, you're going to get something like six underground or Spencer confidential or extraction, which is just like Drek. Yeah. Extraction. Uh, it's fine, but it, it does feel like it's hitting very specific beats. You can see it. I think we talked about this on our extraction podcast, but like Joe Russo and I think Sam Hargrave, the director admitted like in their cut of the movie, uh, the original cut, you didn't meet Chris Hemsworth character until um, a little bit into the film. And Netflix was like, well, when people start watching, they'll stop watching if they don't, if you don't get to the thing that they came for within the first, like, what, three minutes, two minutes, whatever it takes to, like, get a click. So that's why it opens in media res. It opens with Chris Hemsworth character, like, in trouble and then flashes back, I think. And, like, and, like, the thing is, is, like, data-driven editing and, and reshoots and all that, like, that's not new. That's just the evolution of, like, test screenings. Yeah. Just Netflix is taking it to a new level because they have all this algorithmic data that's being constantly fed to them. Yeah. But by the same token, 
you know, films that like, uh, you know, how many times have you heard like this got the highest test screenings ever in the history of the studio? And it's like, who gives a shit? Yeah. You know, like this notion that test screenings are like the end all be all or that data is the end all be all. All it just tells you is like, well, this is popular with a certain subset of people, but that doesn't necessarily make for great art. This, you know, democratization of, you know, what should art be? I just I get from a business standpoint, it's great and it's great to show to shareholders and you have something to fall back on. But as something that lasts and that you care about, like no one's ever going to fucking rewatch Spencer Confidential. <laughs> I bet. No. Well, I, I actually disagree with that. I bet some people will because it feels like Netflix's prerogative now is something for everyone. Like at least some people will love there, this. Yes, there will always be people who will watch like Spencer Confidential. But I would say, like, the film does not matter. It is it is pure content. It doesn't yeah. leave a footprint at all. It just kind of floats in the ether. You know, in the same well, way I, that I, I feel like a film like, 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 how much money did they dump on Bright? Yeah. You know? Which still has a sequel in the works, apparently. <laughs> it's still happening. That was a big deal because that was their first blockbuster. Right. And it makes me frustrated. And I don't necessarily begrudge them. Like, if I had access to that data, which is insane, I would like go crazy into it. I would love to see that data that shows because you are literally following like what people are doing versus what you think people will do. Like how much, how often people watch certain things and when they watch it and you know what they watch after that. Um, but it frustrates me because as you said, like they didn't know what they had with Stranger Things and it's been a long time since Stranger Things launched. Well, and that's the thing. I think that, I think you can see the limitations of their data. Their data told them, oh, The Office is one of our most popular shows. We're going to lose The Office, so let's drive a dump truck of money up to Greg Daniels and Steve Carell to make Space Force, and yeah. we'll have our own little like workplace sitcom from the minds of The Office, and no one cares about Space Force. Like, yeah. it's, it's like it doesn't even exist anymore. And like again, I'm sure there's some people that are watching it, but talk about like low return. You know, I, mean, I liked it more than most, but like I have not talked to a single person that's been like, I love Space Force. Right. So like I like most people I've years like, yeah, I dropped out after two episodes. Yeah. Which I think is why Eurovision is a minor miracle, because I I I thought it was going to be kind of direct and I ended up kind of loving it. Yeah. And again, that's, that's sort of like when Netflix just kind of positions itself as a content mill, it, there's no kind of mark of prestige. I mean, and the thing is, is that that's kind of what HBO was able to sort of put as their imprint. Like if it's going to be on HBO, you know, it's going to be something, it may not be great, but we, it feels like it's invest. We've invested in it. Like we're not just giving you anything. And without that sort of like, because Netflix is just, we'll give you everything. It, it, it just kind of all blends together. Yeah. Which is like, a shame. It is a shame. And I feel like, you know, it's funny for all of their like, you know, proclamations about the algorithm, you know, I feel like everything that's a breakout hit is more about something I hear from friends rather than something Netflix recommended to me. Like Netflix did never recommend it. I think you should leave. I just saw people started talking about it and like, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I was looking uh, to rewatch it the other night and I couldn't find it in any of the like popular on Netflix or like, like this thing. I had to like actual search for it. And I had watched it before. Right. Um, so yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Netflix again as we must. Um, but Eurovision is, guard. yeah, with the old guard. Um, I'm curious to see. What, have you watched it yet? No, I'll be I'll watching be, it this weekend. I'll be curious to hear what you think about it because I, I genuinely was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Nice. I'm excited um, to see it. 
All right, well, you want to shift gears and talk about Irresistible? <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, listeners. Bye. <laughs> All right, Irresistible. So it's me and Adam and our listeners, Fred and Claire. <laughs> we, have, we have a listener <laughs> named Fred and a listener named Claire who are like, oh. <gasps> Only people that saw this movie. No one. Well, I think it. it was a hard sell because it was like you got to pay 20 bucks and it got bad reviews and it's yeah. kind of hard to market. So like, eh. and like I'm a huge John Stewart fan. So I was like, yeah, I'll pay 20 bucks to see it. So, it, yeah, I. The, so the thing about Irresistible that really jumped out at me <laughs> was the vitriol against it. People were yeah. like mad at it. And I was like, yeah, the film doesn't work. But at no point was like, like, ah, fuck, like. Fuck John Stewart. Like, whoa, whoa. Like, it was. <laughs> I think the film has shortcomings. It feels like it was take it. It feels like it was made directly, like made or written at the very least written directly after the 2016 election. Yeah. And a lot has changed since then. And it's very hard to keep up at that pace. And so the film feels very late. Um, it doesn't feel like it's really reckoning with all the sort of racial animus that has, you know, percolated yeah. uh, in a way that I think that, you know, something that, you know, we were, <laughs> John Stewart is sort of this voice of sage wisdom for our generation. Cause we would watch the daily show, you know, religiously. Yeah. Uh, every, his, night, every night in bed, I watched the daily show. His voice and his insight was so key and it really did reshape the, the landscape of late night uh, the yeah. way that it is like before John Stewart, it was like, Jay Leno was like, hey, do you hear about this? Hi, and this guy sounds funny. Ah, the dancing Eos. Like, like that was what news, like, that's what it was. And it's yeah. like, no, there's a story between the story that we're not looking at. And I think that was sort of the the gift of, of John Stewart and his writers. But I feel like with um, something he said at the, at, right after Trump won was he was sort of pushing back against the idea that like all people who voted for Trump were racist. And he was like, you can't just call 60 million people racist. And I think he missed that the Trump voter, that's true. Not everyone who voted for Trump was a dyed in the wool racist, but racism was not a deal breaker for them. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the thing. He never, like Trump never really made any secret of how his politics of division and fear, like that was his, his platform. It was, I alone can fix it. Crime, like that was his convention speech. Like I'm not making this up and he didn't like try to hide it. This isn't like, oh, only if you read this editorial from 1973, would you know? Like you don't have to be like a news junkie to like pick up on what he was putting down. And I think the thing with Irresistible is it misses, by missing the racial animus that has animated Trumpism, you get this sort of kind of like, well, we just need to win back the white working class voter. And like, that's kind of what is propels irresistible from a plot standpoint. Like the whole reason Steve Carell goes to sort of bolster this candidate in this small mayoral race in a small town is he, is he tells the DNC, we can test out some messaging here to win back these white working class voters. And I think it just kind of misses like the fact that of how much the politics has changed and what, you know, who these voters are. And it feels very much like on the one hand, I feel like Jon Stewart doesn't want to dismiss these voters, but I think at the same time, he's not really 
being as incisive as he needs to be. Like for the very fact of the matter is, is like the film starts with this, you know, town hall about immigration, but the film isn't about immigration. It's not about like the immigrants, like the, like it all gets reduced down to a very white lens. And I don't, I'm not saying like John Stewart made a racist movie, but I do think he had a blind spot that makes the film feel out of touch and out of date. I think you're right. I think, and I didn't hate this movie. I liked it fine. Um, I didn't necessarily understand the like, fuck this movie and fuck John Stewart of it all. It was uh, people very, were like, so mad. People were very mad. Like they yeah. were betrayed, which to me is, is a faulty position. Like John Stewart is not here to save you. No. <laughs> like that, already is and i wrote an editorial like john stewart doesn't owe you anything like he already yeah. did his work and if he wants to make if he wants to make garbage he can make garbage and you're free to call it garbage but he's not here to save you yeah yeah he did uh, he and the daily show writers did all of that work and reshaped things but he you know i would get a little annoyed when he would maintain like oh i'm just making a comedy show and i think he's admitted now that like i always felt a little um that I was betraying something when I said that, because I think he knew it was more than just a comedy show. Um, well, well, he was also caught in an awkward position because he was supposed to be a comedy show. Like the problem yeah. is, is that it's it, the, the, the comedy show had a more serious, had more serious thinking about politics than the politics shows had about their own yeah. business. So the politics shows became the joke and he was the one who became serious. And like, that's not totally on him. And I would draw a line from that directly to Irresistible. So like that iconic moment when he went on Crossfire and was like, you are bad people and you're doing bad things. Like this is entertainment. This is uh, performative. You are not actually having any kind of substantive dis discussion here. Um, and I think the target. So like, yes, absolutely. Irresistible has a race problem. It completely ignores race. I think that is uh, probably its biggest failure. Um, is that it doesn't take any of that into consideration. But I do think the target of Irresistible is not, I don't think it's a film about how do we win back working class voters. I think the film is about partisan hacks. I think the film is about political operatives. That's its target. And it's also very heavily a satire. Like it is very broadly a satire. This is in no way, shape or form trying to reflect a realistic portrayal of America. It is an exaggerated portrayal of America to satirize like what has happened and what is going on so the like the specific plot beats that happen are not supposed to be taken as like oh yeah this is exactly what's happening in america right now or this is exactly what would happen in america right now and so i saw people saying like oh you know it's kind of gross that it puts up the steve carell character as the hero it doesn't no like, it, it, it's it, not it, it hates him no it hates his character and it did it's not anti-liberal it's not anti-democratic but it is anti these uh, partisan hacks. I mean, he said he was inspired by um, things like the John Ossoff race, where he's flying to Virginia to woo over donors for a tiny race in Georgia, which had nothing to do with any of that. And then, like, why why is the future of the Democratic Party leaning on these small races in these states? Like, why is that a focus? Why is that? Why is there so much money put into that? And obviously the money is the other major target. Yeah, it's to me what he, I think what the film does best is articulate the notion of the election economy is what, yeah. is what the film calls it. And why are we pumping so much money into elections rather than pumping money into school districts or, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, I, I feel like that's a, that's a fair point. I would also say 
the problem is, I think, and what, what Stuart seems to see is that the election economy perpetuates itself. Like you will never, the money will never go where it needs to go because it will always be wealthy donors essentially playing a sport at, with interchangeable candidates and that their money goes into just the elections. And so you never, the idea of elections is, is and, and really politics is that it's not a game. It's for the purposes of power. And you're supposed to use that power to affect real change. And so when and and the problem is, is that these partisan hacks like Steve Carell's character and, and uh, Rose Byrne's character, they don't care about the change. They don't care about the outcomes. They only want to win or lose. And it basically reduces it all to a game. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of when Chris Matthews came on. The Daily Show to promote his book. The book was called Life's a Campaign. It was about how to live your life as if it were a campaign. And John Stewart said, This is a recipe for sadness. <laughs> uh, well, and like the, if we want to get into the ending, the ending of the film has been strongly criticized. And people say, So if you haven't seen Irresistible, I guess we should set up the plot. Uh, this guy, played by Chris Cooper, gives this impassioned speech at a town hall that goes viral, where he's talking about, um, you know, they're being racist and they should support immigrants, and their town has lost all of its business. Uh, there was an army base there that got pulled out, and all the jobs got pulled out, and they have no money. Um, Steve Carell's character comes down to try and get convince this guy to run for mayor of this tiny town um, as a Democrat. Uh, and so then it just becomes this political firestorm of the Republicans then start pumping money into his challenger because it becomes this symbolic race for both parties, which is a thing that happens and is stupid. Um, and then in the end, you learn that it was an entirely a setup there. There was no the speech was written and rehearsed. Um, the town did all this to funnel all this money into the town. So all this money being put into these packs. Um, which are legally not supposed to be tied to the campaigns of these people um, or the campaigns of the uh, that are being run by like the Republicans and the Democrats, the money in the packs, uh, they're free to use however they want. And so they use it to save the school, the public schools in trouble and to kind of like rebuild the town, funnel all that money back into the town. Um, I think that's right. And then, yeah, no, it, it's all, it's basically there, there it's, it's uh, word scam isn't the right word, but there it's a it's a it's kind of like a heist. It's yeah. basically they're taking the money that was intended for this political campaign, this oversaturated proxy fight, and they're like, no, we're going to use it to actually like our plan is to use it to for good for the good of the town because that's what we care about. Even though your priorities are your national campaigns and your your own sort of consulting firms. And I think like some of the arguments I saw against it were like the film is positing that these people are just as scammy and just as like back dealing as the hacks, which I think is absolutely not what the film is saying. I think the film is saying what it exactly what it's saying, which is that it is silly for you guys to be spending this much money on a race that really ultimately means nothing for both parties when all of that money, which you have could be used to save our town, could be used to save our schools, could be used like in the community. I think right. that's the point. The idea is that like, you know, the reason these people are hacks is they believe in nothing. Yeah. Like Steve Carell and Rose Byrne, their characters believe in nothing. The townspeople believe in something like they're the ones who have to live in the town. Yeah. And then if you, you know, if, if you extrapolate that, because again, this is all satire, 
the idea is look at how much money we're funneling into presidential campaigns. And yet Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water. Like, do yeah. you see, like, look at the disconnect there about yeah. where this money is going. And we've essentially, by, by turning politics into an, uh, an entertainment and turning it into a game, the money goes to perpetuate the game show rather than the people. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other argument I saw was like, well, both sides are bad. It's this both sidesism, which I don't think is necessarily true either, because, again, it's about these hacks. It's about these these partisan people, though. I do think the larger point stands that too much money is being put into these races. Right. Exactly. Like, I mean, I don't th see the thing is, is it. I think both sidesism is toxic when you use it for everything. Like, I don't yeah. think like, you know. For, to use a current example. People are protesting systemic racism. You know, that's, you know, I think that's a good fight. That is not equal to when racists don't want to wear masks in public. Like, yes, they are technically both protest movements, but one has merit because it benefits the larger society and one is selfish. Like, and I think like if you were to both sides that you'd be, well, you'd probably be like Chris Zilla, but you'd be basically a fucking idiot. <laughs> um, but the, the larger point is that in this case, yes, I, Democrat, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are both to blame because they are using they are both part of a system that is funneling money to consultants. And I think it'd be ridiculous to pretend otherwise to just, well, yeah. my side would never do that. Yes, your side does that. That's the issue. And that's why we all have to sort of. You know, that's the thing about my, my 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 opinion of Irresistible is like, again, I'm with you. I didn't hate it, but it was a film that was like, yes, I agree. And like, but yeah. I don't want that from my, I don't, to me, like, that's not a good movie because a good movie should make me think and really question my beliefs and really, you know, affect me in a way that gets me to do more than just nod in agreement. And that's all Irresistible got me to do is like, oh, I agree with that. But it didn't make me laugh that much. I couldn't tell you like a single joke really from it. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like, you know, I think it's it's fair to have expectations of Jon Stewart given all of his success. But I would also add the caveat that his success comes in a different medium, which is sort of. Um, it reminds me of like a, a Mitch Hedberg joke, which is like asking someone's like, hey, you like to cook. Can you farm? Like it's two different skill sets and doing comedies, doing a satire program for late night that is like up to minute, up to the like, not up to the minute, but like the day's events is a different thing than like, I'm going to write a narrative feature with characters and a plot and see how that works out. I just don't think Stuart is as strong in that medium as he was in the late night medium, which again, he didn't like come out the, the gate and like the daily show was amazing. Like the yeah. daily show took like a couple years to really find its groove. It was his era of the daily shows show was really a, a counterpoint to Fox news and cable news in general. Um, but was really about the cable news cycle. We, and I think it's fascinating watching Trevor Noah. Now it's more about um, social media and these other outlets where people are getting their news and getting their information. But I do think right. it's telling that like one of the most impactful moments of the entire movie comes in the credits where Jon Stewart is actually interviewing someone who has to do with these uh, rules and regulations and like is getting him to admit how ridiculous it is that, uh, you know, the, the the way that these things, these things work. Right. And I feel like, you know, again, 
I think there's too much reliance on like, oh, John Stewart will save us. Um, that I think gave this film expectations that it could never really carry. I mean, to go back to your example about Crossfire, that Crossfire was, I believe, Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson. And yeah. the guy that Tucker, I mean, John Stewart really went after Tucker Carlson and called yeah. him a dick, um, <laughs> which is a night, which was far too nice a, a descriptor. Yeah, far too kind. Um, where's Tucker Carlson now? Tucker Carlson has the highest rated, you know, late night, you know, cable program. Yeah. Like, that's so this notion that like he obliterated him like no like the problem is systemic and like when you have an when your politics becomes entertainment and a good way to entertain people is to get them angry over issues yeah someone like tucker carlson is going to find a way to succeed in that environment until you learn that the whole system is broken yeah um and I can understand why John Stewart was frustrated because he was consistently pointing out all of this stuff and consistently doing it in a very compelling way. John Stewart slams, John Stewart roasts, John Stewart takes to task. But if there's no one doing anything about it, what's the point? No, then it's just it it becomes part of the entertainment complex. Yeah. Then it's just like, ah, this this sort of speaks to my viewpoint. And it's then it just becomes I agree. Right. And it's share just on becomes Facebook. A, Right. It becomes a security blanket. And I feel like yeah. we, you know, you can see that right now. I saw this ad from the Lincoln Project the other day that was like people in Donald Trump's cabinet are betraying him. They don't they're going to get you, Donald. I'm like, who the fuck is this ad for? And it's like, we hope Donald Trump sees it. I'm like, who the fuck cares? Like it's it. To me is way more about comforting a certain audience, in this case, liberal viewers, than it is about what an election ad should do, which is change minds and get people to vote. Yeah. Like, and I feel like this notion, like, because we've allowed news and entertainment to become so blurred that it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. And, and to the film's credit, they drop in a, a very brief aside where they reference Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death. And that's all about like no longer being able to tell the difference of what matters. Um, so I, I feel like the thing about Irresistible is that I think it, it 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 shows that John Stewart is not a dumb guy. I think the problem is that his skill as a cinematic storyteller still requires development. Yeah, and also if you're trying to talk about politics in the world today, you got to be faster. Well, you well, you have to be faster or you have to hit something in such a way that people hadn't thought about it before. Like, yeah. like get out is technically nothing new in terms of like, you know, racism has been around for a while. But Jordan Peele hit it in such a way that, you know, white people are not going to help you. You are on your own and they yeah. only see you as a value in this. Like he had to make a really smart expertly constructed argument even though you know no one be like i didn't know racism was a thing but because he made it in such a in such a smart way now there's a shorthand for the um inept white guy which is i would have voted for obama for a third term like he yeah. he knew how to sell that in a really smart way and i just don't think irresistible is developed enough to really land in a way beyond like yes i agree with that yeah yeah, agreed. And it's not going to change minds. You're not going to have like Republicans being like, you know what? I think I will check out this new film from Johnson. No, yeah. it's it's yeah, it just doesn't work. And that's a shame because I I think John Stewart's great. I wish, you know, I it's not I want him back to like save us. I just think he's a really smart and funny and empathetic guy. And I 
So even though Irresistible didn't work for me, I would happily watch whatever he does next. Yeah. Yeah, same here. So um, anyway, for our final, for our remaining two listeners, thank you for indulging us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You want to move on to Recently Watched? Let's do it. All right. What have you seen lately? Um, So I can't remember if it's still on Netflix or going off Netflix soon, uh, but I think it was going off Netflix soon. So I decided to revisit What Lies Beneath. Uh, the Robert Zemeckis film from, gosh, what year was that? I want to say 2001. Yeah, that could be right. Let me see. 2000? Uh, 2000, yes. So the big the, the big deal with this movie was that Robert Zemeckis made Castaway. Uh, and obviously Castaway opens with Tom Hanks uh, being a little chubby, and then he gets stuck on an island, and then it flashes forward a few years, and he's now super skinny. So Robert Zemeckis decided... Uh, the way they were going to do that was they were going to shoot the part of the movie with Tom Hanks when he was um, heavier, shut down production, and give Tom Hanks a year to lose that weight. And the way that he convinced the studio to do it was that he agreed to make another movie for them. Um, He was like, I'll direct another movie for you in between while I'm waiting on Tom. And that other movie was What Lies Beneath, uh, which is just a really taut thriller. The script is by Clark Regg, actually, um, who plays Agent Coulson. Um, and it starts Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer as, as this, uh, kind of loving, uh, couple living in Vermont. Uh, he is like a researcher, like a scientific researcher, I believe. Um, and she starts suspecting that the, the couple across the street, that the husband may be abusive or maybe has murdered the wife. And so she's kind of on edge and she starts like finding like, strange things start happening around the house. It's a supernatural horror thriller is, is what it's described as. Um, and it's just like super good. <laughs> like it's one of those movies that they absolutely would never make today. It cost a hundred million dollars and it's just people in a nice Vermont home talking. <laughs> um, there are some cutting edge visual effects that, you know, Zemeckis always has to throw a little bit of that in there, which I think accounted for some of the budget. Um, but Michelle Pfeiffer is tremendous in this movie. And what I really like about it is that like domestic thrillers are all about the director has a lot to do with how well a direct, uh, a domestic thriller works because it's all in the blocking. It's all in where you're putting the camera and it's all in the performances. The script, obviously it plays a major role, but the story is being told in rooms with people talking. Um, and if you're trying to make it a thriller, if you're trying to evoke tension or fear or anything like that, You've got to be a good filmmaker to do that with the camera. And I think Zemeckis absolutely nails it with this movie. Um, Harrison Ford, I mean, I think this is his only villain role ever. Um, unless I'm mistaken, I guess Cowboys and Aliens kind of. But I uh, don't know if we want to count that. But he's so good at it. And I, it makes me wish he had played more um, kind of nasty characters. Because uh, he's really good in this movie. Um, and yeah, it's just like a really solid thriller. Um, made by, you know, a really good director with, uh, you know, it's essentially a two-hander between Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, and they're both really good. It just holds up really well. It's a great, like, weekend afternoon watch. I was like, oh, yeah. Because I remember I was a huge Harrison Ford fan when it came out, and I remember the trailers really struck me, and I saw it in the theater and really liked it when I was a kid. So probably too young to get in, but, you know. Cool. Yeah, it's one I've been meaning to, to revisit for a while now. Um, for me, uh, I, I recently, my wife and I recently rewatched, uh, for your consideration, uh, which came out in 2006, Christopher guest film. And I, neither of us had seen it since it was in theaters. 
And we like Christopher Guest movies. We we really like Waiting for Guffman and, and Mighty Wind and Best in Show. But we were kind of like, yeah, I don't I don't remember thinking that highly of For Your Consideration, but let's let's revisit it. Now, first off, For Your Consideration is not a mockumentary like the other films are. Um, the idea the premise of the film is that it, there it takes place on this sort of indie at this indie studio where they're making a film called Home for Porum. And it's just this small little film that's kind of this a mix between overwrought Southern drama and like a Jewish holiday, which is the best part of the film. The jokes <laughs> of like, 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 like a Tennessee Williams play, but Jewish is mwah, that's that's nice. Um, I, but the the sort of the inciting event is when they're one of the actresses in the film. Apparently, someone stopped by the set and and wrote on a website that they think there could be some Oscar buzz for this actress. And then everyone starts getting a little more interested in this movie and like, oh, maybe it'll be an Oscar contender. Maybe it'll be an Oscar contender. And like everyone sort of just gets very puffed up about the possibility of this of their of getting Oscar nominations. And the problem with the film is it's too specific to really have broad comedy. It's very much like a this is what people in Hollywood care about kind of story. But it's not specific enough to make the jokes land for the subset that it's aiming towards because you and I follow Oscar campaigns and like they just don't work that way. They didn't really even work that way in 2006. Um, The notion that like, you know, oh, we this film could be an Oscar contender because someone wrote something on a website like, no, there are campaigns and studios know. And like if a film does get Oscar consideration, it's already opened and people are reacting to something in it. It doesn't just come about because someone wrote a thing on the Internet and revisiting it. Like most of the like, even though Catherine O'Hara is very good and like, I mean, it's it's Christopher Guest knows how to assemble a strong cast. The jokes just don't land like they do in other in his other movies where there feel there feels like there's a lot more room for the actors to improvise and really play off each other and use that mockumentary structure for some needed spontaneity. Uh, and so for your consideration, I was watching, I would just feel like this is a good idea because Oscar, like I agree with like what Christopher Guest and, and Eugene Levy who wrote the film, like what they were going for, which is that Oscars are ridiculous. I think that's like not a bad starting point, but I think you needed a stronger view. And I think if you were to make it now, it'd be funny to like go in the world of like Oscar bloggers and Academy members and sort of like these people who haven't created anything, but their proximity to power makes them very sort of egotistical and very strange. And like the things they choose to care about would make it, I think, add the specificity that for your consideration is missing. I will say, I do love the joke of that movie when uh, towards the end of the film, her physical transformation. Yes. (laughs) Catherine O'Hara is a gift. She's just, Talking about it, like, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but it does remind me of Schitt's Creek. I don't know if you've watched any of Schitt's Creek. I've watched Creek. a few episodes. Like, her her Moira Rose character, they're, like, in the last couple of seasons, there starts to be renewed buzz in the soap that she was in. Um, and her excitement at potentially being back in the spotlight is, is she's just so good at it. Um, she's oh, long overdue for an Emmy. I don't know if she's ever won one, but I feel like this could be her year with uh, Schitt's Creek, because... She's just tremendous in that final season, but she's a treasure, national treasure. Uh, All right. Well, this has been our episode. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can people find you on Twitter? Adam Chitwood.
And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Next week, we will be talking about Palm Springs, which uh, arrives on Hulu on July 10th. That episode will be filled with spoilers. Uh, I would say right now, do not watch any trailers for Palm Springs. Go in cold. And then once you see the film, we'll be like, oh, that's why they told me not to watch any trailers. Uh, But once we do the podcast, it's going to be spoilers because we have to talk about the premise of the movie and uh, why it works so well. So we'll dig into all of that next week. So next week's episode is Palm Springs. Thanks for listening so much. We'll be back with you next week. Hello, Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Bolin Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to BolinBranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com today. See site for details.